All right, please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 73. That's going to be the text we take under consideration tonight. Psalm 73, and this is the word of the living God. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with folly. They scoff and and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues stretch through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But as for me... It is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. And God, I pray that this word would be what we need to hear tonight. I pray, Lord, that you would use this in our lives to shape us and mold us. Father, I pray that you would please be with me, that I would decrease and you would increase, and Lord, that I would be just an insufficient servant and vessel for your word, God. I pray that you would receive the glory, and Lord, that we would indeed be challenged to live more like Christ as a result of tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. It's always very easy for us to focus on the world and on the culture. We kind of tend to do this a lot, especially now when we look out into the world and we see the deep darkness and we see all of the 
uh, wickedness that's rampant and all of um, the the violence, the dishonesty, the immorality, it is everywhere and it's impossible to miss. You know, we talk about the LGBTQ plus and we talk about abortion and we talk about, you know, corruption and, you know, uh, marginalization and persecution of the Christian worldview. And we, it's important for us to look at these things. We have to, we have to be equipped to respond to these things biblically. However, sometimes when we spend too much time focusing on the sins out in the world and in the culture, it can be easy for us to slip into a place of self-righteousness. It's easy to see just the rampant evil that's all around us. And then it's easy for us to start to compare ourselves because we're not guilty of some of those extreme sins. And we understand we're pretty clear eyed on what the problems are. We see the, you know, the agendas. We see the false worldviews. We see the lies. And so, you know, we're privy to all of that. We see it with clear eyes. We see the problems. We want to address the problems. We want to live faithfully. We want to live biblically. And we're generally seeking to be, at least compared to the world, we're decent and we're upstanding. We have families. We, you know, come to church on Sundays, we go to work, we do our business. You know, we are seeking to be good citizens against the backdrop of the culture. But in doing this, we can begin to become blind and insensitive to our own everyday sins. And so what I want to bring to us us tonight through the Word of God is to address some of those sins that are very common in our own hearts that aren't so extreme. This isn't a kind of rousing, get ready to go out and tackle the idols of our culture. This is tackle the idols in your own heart because we often can compare ourselves to the world and we start to say, well, at least I'm not like that. I'm not that bad. Wow, look at how far gone the world is. We spend time on social media and we see all the wickedness on there and we start to feel pretty good about ourselves and we miss the serious sin that we carry around in our hearts every day. When we look at other sins, um, we start to become insensitive to our own. And we also, you know, we live in a culture, I mentioned social media, where it is extremely easy to compare ourselves constantly to others. And we do this in the realm of sin. We see the sins of the world and we're kind of in our minds comparing ourselves to that. I'm not so bad. I don't do all that stuff. We also do this when it comes to others' possessions, to others' stuff. We compare ourselves, we look at what we have, and then we look out to the world, and we live in such an age where people are extremely public about everything they do and everything they have. And so we see ourselves, and we start to compare ourselves to others, to what they have, and we start to feel covetous and envious. And in both cases, whether we're looking at the sins of the world or whether we're looking at the possessions of the world, we're guilty of making these comparisons of measuring ourselves against others rather than examining ourselves in the light of God's truth. And when we make these comparisons, if we don't keep them in check because comparisons are natural, we live in 
a society. We're not isolated individuals. We live in communities. And so naturally, we're going to see distinctions and similarities, and we're going to make comparisons. So it's not necessarily sinful. However, if we don't keep our comparisons in check, then they do end up leading to self-righteousness and to covetousness. We see the sins of others and we say, at least I'm not like that. And we see the possessions of others and we say, why don't I have that? And in either case, our eyes are off of God, our eyes are off of our own hearts, off of our own sins, our eyes are off of what God has given us, and so we're not thankful. And we're guilty, oftentimes becoming guilty of grumbling against God. And so we need to look out for these sorts of comparisons that we tend to make and we tend to dwell on so regularly. And that's what the psalm um, is really dealing with. And so the psalmist begins in verse 1 with an affirmation of God's goodness. He says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And then he contrasts that with his own sin. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. And so he opens up with a comparison between God and himself. That God is good, God is faithful to his people, it's sure and it's true. And yet as for me, I am sinful. I had nearly stumbled, I had nearly slipped. He almost fell into extremely dire, detrimental sin. But he begins with this rock-solid foundation. And this is where we must begin if we're going to conquer the sins of grumbling, of envy, of covetousness, of comparing, of self-righteousness. We need to begin with this essential truth. Truly God is good to his people. Romans 8.28 says that we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. We need to be grounded in this truth outside of ourselves, on that rock-solid truth of God's goodness, which stands in contrast to our feelings, to our experiences, to what we are, are feeling like in the moment. Because sometimes we'll go through moments where it doesn't seem as though God is good to his people. It does, I don't feel like God is doing good to me. But we need to be grounded in the truth of God's word. Truly, God is good to his people. No matter what you feel, no matter what your current experiences are, no matter what everything that doesn't seem to support this, we know the truth from God's word that he is good to his people. This is a concrete reality that is rooted in God's word. And also, if we're honest and if we're you know looking back objectively, History testifies to God's goodness to his people, and our own personal experience testifies to God's goodness. If we actually stop and consider all that God has done for us from beginning to end, both his common grace provisions and the provision he gives us in Christ, the renewal he gives us, the transformation he works in us, the blessings, the eternal inheritance, everything God has done for us is good. He is good to his people, no exceptions. Scripture tells us, history tells us, experience tells us. And so again, he contrasts this with himself. God is good. I am sinful. I had nearly stumbled in verse 2. 
And so he acknowledges from the very beginning. See, the psalmist is about to go into this lengthy and detailed confession of his own sinful thought pattern, of the sinful train of thought that he follows almost to a disastrous conclusion. But he, say, he says to us from the very beginning that God is not the problem. He roots us in the concrete reality. God is good. I am sinful. So keep that in mind as we go through tonight and keep that in mind in your own life. When you are feeling as though maybe God has done you wrong, when you're feeling like maybe God hasn't supplied you with everything that you feel as though you need, remember the concrete truth. God is good. I am sinful. He says that it's nearly he who stumbled. It's his sin who, uh, it's, it was his sin that nearly destroyed himself. And so he's decidedly, when he's letting us know that as he goes through this psalm and he tells us of his thought patterns, that he is not accusing God of injustice or of wrongdoing. His sin was nearly to do that. His sin was to question and to doubt this truth of God's goodness. And then he goes on, as I mentioned, to describe this sin in detail. And he tells us as well that the heart of this sin is envy. In verse 3, he goes into it. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So he confesses both what this sin is that nearly destroyed him, envy, and he also tells us what caused it. It was seeing the prosperity of the wicked. So at the very beginning, we find the psalmist as he heads down this sinful path that his eyes are off of himself, they're off of God, they're off of his own sin, they're off of the blessings God has given to him, and they are on the wicked who are prosperous. Instead of looking at everything that God has done for him, instead of examining his own heart and sifting through the sin of his own heart, he is looking at the wicked and envious of what they have. And so it begins with comparisons and with envy. You look at what the wicked have and he says, why don't I have that? I should have that. Instead of looking, um, I'm sorry. So the sin that grieved the psalmist, the sin that brought the psalmist to the brink of disaster is begins with that reality of comparisons. It begins with taking his eyes off of God and onto the wicked and focusing on them, fixing his attention on them. It's not simply noticing what the wicked have, but it is fixating on it and letting that fester and have harbor in your heart. And this sinfulness falls squarely under the 10th commandment. You shall not covet. So he confesses that he was envious, that he was looking at what the wicked had, that he was covetous. Seeing what others have, being envious that you don't have it, falling into discontentment, falling into ingratitude towards God, that's the heart of covetousness. That's the 10 commandment. When you start noticing, when you start longing for what other people have, when you're upset that you don't have it, when you're ungrateful towards God and you actually begin down the road of accusing God of injustice and of doing you wrong. That's what the psalmist was guilty of. And James also warns Christians of this very same thing. If you all would, uh, you can turn with me to James chapter 1 
Because we're warned in the New Testament of this same tendency. This is a natural tendency of the human heart to make these comparisons and to have this envy and envious and covetous spirit. In James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, we are told, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And then if you turn over to chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, he continues along these lines, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. So James is reminding Christians to stay away from these sorts of comparisons, this sort of enviousness, and he tells us what the trajectory of this kind of sin is. He says that this sin, when we have the desires of our heart, that's where the temptation is born. When the temptation comes forth as sin, and then when the sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. And then in chapter 4, he puts that... Um, that flesh and bones on it. He says, he takes it out of the theoretical when you, you know, struggle with these temptations, it's going to lead to sin and it's going to lead to death. And he puts it very concretely saying that you are having problems within the body of Christ. You're fighting and you're quarreling because you ha- don't have and you want. You look at what others have and you want it and you're upset that you don't have it. It leads to malice. That's anger towards other people simply because they have what you want, wishing harm towards others because they have what you want. It leads to bitterness, a discontented spirit, constantly feeling like you're not getting what you are due. It leads to ingratitude, refusing to acknowledge and to give thanks to God for what you do have. That's all the fruit of this beginning of comparisons, covetousness, and envy. And as James says, this can lead to physical harm or even murder. James says, you do not, you want it and you don't have it, so you murder. And if not that extreme, it leads to fights. It leads to fallings out. It leads to division. It leads to feuds. It leads to bad blood. It leads to division within the body of Christ and separation because we're constantly looking at what other people have and envious that we don't have it. And so this sin of envious comparisons that we love to make needs to be killed in the cradle. We cannot allow it to have any harbor in our hearts because it's the kind of sin that takes root, that grows up, and that will destroy us. We see that in James, and we're going to see that as we go through the psalm. And so the moment we encounter this kind of train of thought where we are starting to not just notice what other people have, but linger there and long for it. And we're actually kind of upset that we don't have it. And we're kind of upset at that person because they do have it. When we start there, we need to crush that sin that second. Because if that sin is allowed to take root in your heart, there will be no end to the things that you will covet and be envious of. And you will destroy relationships. And we can do this with anything. The psalmist noticed uh, the, the riches and the wealth of the wicked. He saw their wealth and their ease. He said they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They had plenty of food. They're not in trouble as others are. They don't deal with the daily distress that we deal with. 
He looked at them. He saw their health. He saw their... Guys, I keep losing my place tonight. I am real sorry. It's because I took that long nap. But you understand. He saw what they had. He saw their ease. He saw all of the, you know, the good that they were blessed with, and he was envious of it. And we do the same thing all the time, especially with social media, but you don't have to be on social media. The older generation knows you don't have to be on social media to covet things and to be envious, but social media sure doesn't help because we're constantly confronted with what other people have that we don't. But we do this with looks and with attractiveness. We can do this with other people's families. We can do this with other people's friend groups, with position, with status, with power, with authority, with skills, with jobs, everything. Our hearts There is no shortage of things that we can covet. We look for things to covet. We look for things to be discontent over. And I want us also to be careful of this because this kind of covetousness can also really disguise itself as righteous indignation or righteous anger. We see this with the psalmist. He looked and he saw the legitimate wickedness of those whom he was envying. It's not like he was slandering them or making stuff up. He looked at them and he saw their legitimate wickedness. He says in verse 6 that they're prideful. Pride is their necklace. They're violent. It covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. They're, uh, they're gluttons and they have, you know, they They glory in that. He says that their hearts overflow with follies. They're foolish. They threaten oppression. They speak with malice. They're scoffers. Their mouths are against the heavens. They're blasphemers. This is all legitimate. There's no reason to believe that the psalmist is making stuff up. He sees them. They're well off. And then he sees all of their sin, all of their disregard and disrespect for God, their willful disobedience. And on top of that, they have no fear of God because they say that, how can God know is their knowledge in the most high and so yes he sees that and there is a place for righteous indignation however we are so sinful because we can very easily take that righteous anger where we genuinely are grieved at the offense towards God at the uh, rebellion against the creator We're genuinely grieved by actual sin. We know that God hates sin, and so we should hate sin. But then we use that as cover for ourselves to then go and envy them and to dwell on making these sorts of comparisons. And then when we do this, we fall so very easily into self-righteousness. We begin to think, well, I'm not so sinful as those people. We begin to, you know, when we're so focused on the sins of others, even the really bad, obvious sins of others, we begin to start focusing on that and examining ourselves and saying, well, I'm not that sinful. And then it's a very short step from that to say, well, God owes me in that case. I look at the wicked. These people hate God, obviously so. And yet they have all this stuff. They have all these riches. They're so richly blessed. Why has God given them so much? And I don't have anything 
This is exactly what the psalmist does in verses 13 and 14. He says, all in vain, I've kept my heart clean. All in vain, I've washed my hands in innocence. I do all this, and yet every morning, all day long, I'm stricken and rebuked. And so the psalmist is saying, I, unlike the wicked, I'm doing everything the right way. I'm worshiping God. I'm keeping myself clean. I'm innocent. I'm not guilty. And yet, what do I get? Afflictions. Every day I wake up, afflictions, rebuke, stricken, all of this. So the psalmist not only is dwelling on the sins of the wicked instead of his own sin, but he's feeling self-righteous. He's puffing himself up. He's implying and insinuating that God owes him. And there's even an implicit accusation against God because who is giving the wicked all of their wealth and food and fatness? It's all coming from God. Everything comes from the hand of God. And yet here's this righteous psalmist, so he thinks, who's keeping his hands clean and doing everything the right way, and God's not blessing him. And so there's an implication that God is at fault. God's being accused because God is not rewarding him materially for his righteousness. He's not rewarding him the way that he wants to be rewarded. And this attitude is actually the exact opposite of the attitude that we're called to as Christians. In Luke 17, Jesus says, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. That's a far cry from what the psalmist is saying. When he's saying, I've done all these good works before you, God. I've obeyed your law. I'm innocent. And God, and, and then he's sitting there expecting God to reward him, acting like God owes him something. No, we do everything God commands because he's God, because God is the authority, because God created us, because God gives us all things, because God makes the rules. We owe him perfect obedience. He owes us nothing for it. And so when we start trying to point to our own obedience as grounds for you know, God rewarding us. We're pleading our good work, saying that God now owes us something. We are doing exactly the opposite of what we're called to as Christians, and we need to repent, and we need to stop. Now, the question, why do the wicked prosper, is not an illegitimate question. That's throughout the Psalms and throughout Scripture, and it's a good We are allowed to grieve over that. We are allowed to have a genuine godly grief when we look at the people who lie and cheat and do injustice and do all sorts of wicked things, and yet they are prominent, they're well off, they just get away with it. That's okay to a degree. But the danger becomes when we're continually focused on the sins and on the prosperity of others, that's when we fall into this covetousness and this self-righteousness. So for example, you're a hard-working uh, you know, worker. You go on time. You, you know, punch in. You put your head down. You work hard. You don't complain. You take whatever the management gives you, and you go ahead and do it. And then there's the others who are going to slack off, who are going to complain, who are going to grumble, who are going to manipulate, who are going to work the system, and they get catered to, right? You have this sort of, I'm sure all of us have kind of gone through situations like this, where the ones who are the worst, who are complaining and who are lazy and who are trying to get around things and work the system, they get catered to, they have it a little bit easier, but if you just go in and do your job, then, you know, what do you get? Nothing. 
And it's really easy for us to look at that and see, you know, these people are dishonest, they're bad workers, and yet they, you know, they're getting it easy. They're getting rewarded. And it's easy for that root of bitterness to begin to take root in our hearts and to lead us to, you know, anger and this sort of self-righteous comparisons. Or you think about, you know, uh, you know, young Christian lady who, you know, has been modest, who has kept herself, and who is ready to get married, and yet has no luck finding a husband. Why, God? Why have you withheld this from me? And yet you look out into the world, and you see the immodest, immoral women who do whatever they want, and then when they decide it's time they want to settle down, they got no problem, they find a husband, they get married. And you see that, and you see, you know, God, why is, you know, why is this the case? But it's so easy to go from there and to fall into that self-righteousness, that covetousness, that envy. God, I've done everything the right way. I did everything. You see, out there, these people are doing things wickedly. They're disobeying your will, and yet you're providing for them and you're blessing them. What about me? I did it right, and you're not blessing me. That's so often our attitude, and it needs to stop. We can't have that. We need to be able to be angry without sin, like Paul said in Ephesians 4. We need to not dwell in anger. That means we need to be able to look at the wickedness of the world, acknowledge it for what it is, not hold back on it, not make excuses for it, but not dwell in it either. Not let that be the, you know, the, not, not the, let that have a seat in our hearts. We need to be able to move on for it. Anger should be for a moment. We should acknowledge it, condemn it, do something about it if we can, but you don't let it define you and control you because it just leads to self-righteousness and it just destroys. The sinfulness comes in when you start thinking, I deserve this, God owes me this. When we, when we seek to appeal to our good works to earn blessing, that's self-righteous. And when we fixate on the prosperity of others, that's covetousness. And both of them are ugly sins. And both of them destroy our walk with Christ. Both of them destroy our relationships with others. And they're both rooted in envy and comparisons. And we need to stop. And what's even worse is that these sorts of comparisons, whether they be on the self-righteous side or the covetous side, they lead to ingratitude to God for what he's given to us. And they also lead to grumbling against God. This was the sin of the Israelites, which still stands today as an example for us. The Israelites who were delivered out of Egypt by a mighty hand of God, who were given unbelievable grace, were delivered by God, and then they grumbled and they complained, and they are like the you know example in Scripture of what not to do. Exodus 16, we're told that the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. They were ungrateful to God, and they grumbled against God. They grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And where did it come from? 
It came from a spirit of covetousness for what they had in Egypt. Would that we were back in Egypt where we had meat and we had bread and we were able to eat and we were able to be full. Instead of giving thanks to God who delivered them out of slavery, brought them under the yoke of bondage and was bringing them to their own land and dominion, instead they grumble against God, they refuse to give thanks to him, and they covet what they formerly have. They covet the slavery that they used to live under. And like I mentioned, Christians are warned specifically against this spirit. 1 Corinthians 10 verses 9 and 10 reads, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. That that generation of the Israelites stands to this day as an example of one who received incredible blessing from God and rejected it and didn't give thanks for it and grumbled and complained against God and so were destroyed in the wilderness and were judged. Jude tells us that grumblers are, that, that grumbling is a clear sign of one who is a false Christian. He says of the false teachers, they are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful passions. That that sin of grumbling, complaining against God, ingratitude, that is a hallmark of unbelief. And once again, it is the exact opposite of what we are called to as Christians, because a clear mark of the Christian is intense gratitude to God. Ephesians 5.20, we are told that we are to admonish one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to with your hearts to God, giving thanks always and for everything in the name of God, our, of, to God our Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're told something similar in Colossians 3, that whatever you do, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. A hallmark of Christian life, of the transformation of the Spirit, is gratitude to God. Hearts full of thankfulness, giving thanks always and for everything. That's what we're called to, not grumbling against God, not complaining against God, that we don't have what we wish that we had. We are to be thankful in all circumstances to our God because he has done so much good for us. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't acknowledge true challenges. It doesn't mean that we can't acknowledge true loss. It doesn't mean that we can't grieve loss. It doesn't mean that we can't acknowledge that we have some needs that aren't met. There is genuine lack sometimes. It doesn't even mean that we can't express genuine desires to God that we have. But ultimately, we need to see Everything in life, whether we receive it, whether it's something that's you know, good or bad in the moment, we need to see everything as ultimately a gift from our loving Father who knows exactly what we need. And so just like self-righteousness and just like covetousness, grumbling will also destroy us. That was the sin of the Israelites who were judged in the wilderness. And it begins... When we do that thing that's very natural for us to do, we fixate on others, we make comparisons in our hearts, we're envious, we're covetous. And we can see that the psalmist isn't justifying his indignation towards the wicked. 
He's not saying that this was righteous, but he confesses that what he's doing when he's going through the list of the sins of the wicked and they're prosperous and he's envying them, he confesses that this was a sinful thought pattern for him because he wasn't grieving their sin as sin before God that God was offended by. He was grieving it because he wanted what they had. It was a self-righteous sort of grieving. And he says in verse 15, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. It came from a wicked and envious heart. It didn't come from a place of genuine jealousy for the glory of God, but came from envy and covetousness and self-righteousness. He wasn't simply grieving over the prosperity of the wicked, and he wasn't even pleading to God as to why God was withholding blessing from him. But what this was, he says, was a treacherous inclination of the heart. He uses the word betrayed, a betrayal, to describe this kind of thinking. If he had followed this thinking to its conclusion, it would have ended up with an indictment of God. It would have ended up with a denial of God's goodness and of his justice. And so he acknowledges this as well. In verses 21 and 22, he says that he was brutish and ignorant and like a beast towards God. That he wasn't thinking like a man who was standing before God and who was redeemed by God, but he was thinking like an instinctive animal, just looking at what others had that he wanted, and out of instinct, being angry and bitter and covetous. It's not what we're called to as those who are redeemed image bearers of God. And this is how we need to think about the sins of covetousness and envy and grumbling and self-righteousness. They're sins that are so easy for us to overlook because they're largely in our hearts and they're not obvious to the world. And it's really easy for us to look at the blackness of the world out there and to, and to compare ourselves in the light of that, in the light of that darkness. It's really easy to make that comparison And these sins can be hidden. They can be kept away in our hearts. We can deny that they're even there, but they will destroy us. And they do need to be confessed and repented of. We need to recognize this sin when it starts. And we need to repent of it. And we need to look with the eyes of faith instead of with the eyes of the flesh. Because the eyes of the flesh make comparisons. The eyes of the flesh are envious and self-righteous. But the eyes of faith look first to God and his word to give us proper perspective. Verse 16, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. That's what brought him to his senses, going before God, considering things with the eyes of faith, having the perspective that comes with standing before God. The first thing he does is he acknowledges that God is just, that even though the wicked appear to be prosperous and appear to be getting away with it, He begins in verse 18, you set them in slippery places, you make them fall into ruin. They're destroyed in a moment, they're swept away by terrors. God is just and he will judge sin. We can be certain that every single sin in all of history will be punished by God. 
The wicked cannot sin with impunity, even if it appears in this life, even if it appears for a time, and even if it appears over the course of a lifetime for the wicked, that someone lives as wickedly as they want and have all the prosperousness and goods of this world until the day they die, we know that ultimately and eternally, they will not get away with their sin. God is just. He will judge sin. But it's not just that. It's not just looking at the world and the wicked and say, okay, well, they'll get theirs. But it's also looking at ourselves and realizing that we deserve the very same judgment. The psalmist deserved judgment just as much as the wicked that he was complaining about. We deserve judgment just as much as the abortionist, as the LGBTQ activist. We deserve judgment as much as anyone out there in the world. He says there, as I mentioned earlier, verses 21 and 22, my soul was embittered, I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant and like a beast toward you. He includes himself with the wicked. He includes himself in that same um, section where he's talking about God's judgment that's going to fall on the wicked and saying that he deserves judgment just as much as they do. And that's where that glorious next word comes, nevertheless. In spite of his sin, God is with him by grace. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. And this is not trivial. This is not a coping mechanism. This is not the, you know, kind of religious softening of the blow where we struggle and we suffer in this life and we don't have very much, but hey, at least I'm with God and at least I have eternity to look forward to. It's not that. This is real and it is concrete and it affects us right now, today. The gift of God's grace, the fellowship that we enjoy with God right now and with his people by his spirit is not trivial. The forgiveness of our sins is greater than any blessing that we could ever receive in this life. Even the best blessings you can think of. Even stability, prosperity, wealth, health, marriage, children. God's forgiveness, God's grace in Christ is better, far better, infinitely better than all of that. So no matter what is withheld from us in this life, if we are with God and if he is with us, that ought to be enough for us. And so he says, nevertheless, I am with you, even though I deserve judgment, even though I suffer in this life, even though there's things I wish I had that I don't have, I am with you, and you hold me by my right hand. And also in that, there's not just the reality for right now, the relationship that we enjoy with God, but he goes on and says that afterward you will receive me into glory. So we are spared the judgment. We are given reconciliation and fellowship with God. And we have that absolute certainty that we will be with God for all eternity. How dare we complain and grumble against God when he has given so much for us? We minimize so much the gift of God's own son who he sacrificed for us. And we say, well, that's all great. I'm thankful for that. God, thank you. But what about all the rest? What about this, this, and this? That's what we're doing when we grumble against God, when we're constantly making comparisons, when we're envious and covetous and self-righteous, we are spurning the gift of Jesus Christ. We are acting as though it's not enough for us. When we have 
received infinitely and eternally more good than we could ever desire in this life. We have received everything from God. He who did not spare his only son, will he not with him richly provide us with all things? God has given us everything. How dare we grumble against him? We need to recognize with all sobriety and in reality that we deserve nothing. That God is wiser than we are. That God loves us more than we love ourselves. That God knows exactly what we need and that God has our ultimate good in mind. And so we go back to that initial proclamation of the psalmist back in verse 1 where he says that truly, truly, God is good to Israel. God is good to his people. A heart of faith, a heart that's been transformed by the Spirit can be sincerely thankful no matter what is lost, no matter what is lacking, no matter what God withholds from us, a truly transformed heart of faith can receive whatever hard providences from God without grumbling, without complaining. And this is the place, when we get to this place, is where we can say with all true honesty and integrity, there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Where with Paul, we can truly count all things as loss. Where we can truly not covet what others have. Where we can actually rejoice with people who have been blessed with good that we wish we had. Where we don't have to fixate on what people around us have or what they're doing. Where we can set our eyes on God. That's the solution. The sins of self-righteousness and covetousness are only solved by looking to God, by fixing our gaze upon God, by remembering what God has done for us, by thinking his thoughts after him, by actively giving thanks to God every day. And this certainly does take faith. And we will fail in this. We will continue to struggle with these sins, but we can rest assured that we are secure in God that it is good to be near God, that the Lord God is our refuge. Amen?